Morning, everyone. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It is a day in which we recognize as a Christian church that Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecy and entered into Jerusalem. But it's easy for us to recognize the specialness of this day, although in reality it's just like any other day for believers. But believers, we tend to recognize days like Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, and then what's that last one? Christmas. We always kind of recognize those days as somewhat special. And so maybe we do something unique, maybe we do something out of the ordinary, and that day sort of is set aside as especially important. Especially when we're talking about life in the church, when we're talking about worshiping God, when we're talking about living the Christian life, we tend to look at those major holidays as very special, and we even look at the calendar ahead of time to go, okay, when's Easter? Because we always know Easter changes, but we always know Christmas is on December 25th, but we look in, at the calendar at the beginning of the year as Easter early or late this year, and we kind of set ourselves ready for a day like that, and we recognize God's work, especially on a day like Palm Sunday and Easter is coming up next week. And there are certain things that get in the way of us recognizing God when he is at work in our lives. And we look to those holidays as the days in which we recognize God's work, but God is working in our lives every single day. But there are some things that get in our way of recognizing God, and one of those is our lack of knowledge. Sometimes we don't simply know how to recognize God, or we don't see God at work, or we don't take time to understand what God has said in order to respond to him. So we have sometimes a lack of knowledge. Other times we have distraction and focus problems. One of my favorite movies is the movie Up. Has everybody seen that? It's, I know it's a cartoon, but I still think that it has uh, a lot of really heart-wrenching moments. One of the best moments is Doug. Do you remember who Doug is? Doug is the dog who's able to talk through technology, and in this meeting his master and communicating all of this to him that he can talk, he sees something out of the corner of his eye. Do you remember what that was? Squirrel. And his attention immediately gets drawn to that distraction, and he loses focus. So we can be distracted and we can lose focus when it comes to seeing and recognizing the work of God. Also, a big one in our lives is pride. Pride is never far from any of us. That sense of self-importance and desire to be recognized by others and put yourself first over others gets in the way of recognizing God's work not just in our lives, but especially in the lives of others. And then lastly, one of the ways in which we forget to recognize God is through assumptions and expectations. This idea of, I've got it all figured out. I know how God works. I know what to expect from him. I know what prayer does. I know what ministries do. I know what worship does. And you have these assumptions and these expectations of how God has to act in your life. And when he doesn't, People often get despair and say, God's left me. I'm on my own. All is lost. I'm done. And the number of times that's happened in Scripture is insurmountable. 
and it happens in our lives as well. So how do we respond to recognizing God's work, not just in this broad Christian topic of how God works, but the individual topics of our lives? How do we go from an excess of knowledge, staying focused, relieving ourselves of pride and living in humility, and knowing exactly what to expect from God? And that is serious understanding and the retelling of these great stories of God's victory and God's expression. And when we focus on these great stories of God's expression, like we are this morning in Palm Sunday, we get reassured that God is not just at work, but God is at work in a miraculous way, and our response to that work is praise. At the mention of his name, we worship and praise. At the mention of his name, we take comfort and solace. At the mention of his name, we were made and designed to be his. And so at the mention of his name, our hearts need to elevate to praise and worship. And our hearts need to be comforted by knowing that we are in the comfort of his hands at all times. Now, Palm Sunday is, is a holiday made by the Christian church probably five, six hundred years after the birth and resurrection of Christ. So it hasn't always been there, but it's an important part because God prophesies about it in Zechariah chapter 9. And in Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet Zechariah, one of the last Old Testament prophets before God went silent, before Christ was born, says this in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, rejoice greatly. Now this is at a time where Israel is in the throes, yet again, of utter despair. They have forsaken God. They have lived according to their own ways. They have worshipped false idols, and they have come back from captivity, and they had sort of this burst of energy through the book of Nehemiah, but that is waning, and they have gone back into their old ways of worshiping false gods, forgetting God, and compromising. Exactly what they've done in the book of Judges. But in the midst of this judgment that God brings upon the oppressors of Israel and Israel itself in the house of God, he says this in verse 9 of Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And then he gives the reason why. Behold, or notice, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And then in Luke chapter 18 and 19, 19 in particular, we have the exact details. That prophecy comes to fulfillment. For over 500 years, that prophecy stood all alone, calling Israel to rejoice, and Israel had nothing to rejoice about. They had no king. They had no savior. They had the promises, but they were looking for someone to come and rescue them. Now, they were thinking, even at the times of Christ, they were thinking in terms of getting us out from under the thumb of the Romans. They were under oppressive hardships by the Romans. And they were looking for someone to usher in a golden era of Israel and bring military victory over their enemies so that they could be set up like King David and Solomon once again. But the clue in Zechariah 9 should have awoken them to recognize 
that this is not a military victory that God is promising and asking us to rejoice about. It is peace. You see, during these days, when a victorious king was coming in to reclaim land, conquer a land, or come back to the city victorious, they rode on their war horses. They had a huge company of warriors and soldiers and chariots by this time, decked out as warriors. But Jesus is not coming in as a warrior, is he? The promise is that he's coming in as someone who is somewhat humble. Still as a king, but riding on a donkey. And that was a symbol of peace. Not coming to conquer a foreign land, but coming to establish his rule and reign as the king of kings and lord of lords. He was coming in peace. Now the details of the story in recognizing Christ happen in Luke chapter 19, verse 29 through 35, gives us the preparation. And it doesn't seem very extraordinary at first reading. He says in verse 28, this is Luke writing, And when they had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. But when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, this is all in preparation of the Holy Week. He said, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. I know that you are very aware that I have zero experience on a ranch, right? Zero experience. I rode a horse twice in my life, twice, and it was a trained horse. And one of the times, it just took off, and I was screaming, holding on for my dear life as a little kid with his horse just running. And I remember the guy who said, oh, yeah, go ahead and ride my horse, said, he'll come back. He knows where we live. And so I was off on a 15-minute, just terrifying, but yet it was thrilling, ride on a tamed horse. I've seen the horse whisperer, and I now think that I can tame a horse. I don't think it works that way. That's the movies. But my understanding is getting on an untamed animal is probably not wise unless you are trained to ride a bunking Bronco or uh, the bulls and all those things. This is a young colt, a young donkey. I cannot imagine the disciples thinking, what are we going to do with this? Totally untrained. It's tied up, so at least we have a rope to hold on to. What in the world is going to happen to this? Because they know in reality, getting on an untrained animal is going to create nothing but a fight from that animal. But he says, do this. Untie it and bring it to me. Verse 31, and if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Basically, why are you taking it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, and they found it just as he had told them. Verse 33, and as they were untying the colt, its owners came to them and said, why are you untying the colt? And they said to him, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. It's very easy to read. 
It's very easy to understand. It's very clear from our perspective that it's fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, that the king is coming. They should have recognized it. They should have known it. That Zechariah passage is one of those that they always hoped to and longed to because they knew that one day they would have victory over their enemies. Little did they know the victory that they needed was not over the Romans. What was it over? Their own hearts. Sin. The pain of death. That which held them in the grips of slavery for eternity. They needed freedom from sin. They needed victory over that greatest of enemies that had plagued them since the days of Adam and Eve. They needed victory over compromise. They needed victory over idolatry and pride. They needed victory over their lack of knowledge and understanding. They needed victory over their selfishness. They needed victory over sin. Their own heart is what had enslaved them. That was a greater slavery than Rome could ever exact on them, that the Babylonians could ever do. That slavery lasted through death to eternity. So simple, so little. It may seem very insignificant. Jesus getting a donkey, riding on it, having the cloaks put on it, and sitting on it. Very insignificant, very small details. How in the world does this raise to the limit, raise to the standard of praising and worshiping God? There's a lot of things that happen in our lives that don't feel very big at the moment that become insurmountably awesome. Paul tells us in, Luke cha- in um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. All of those events in our lives that we feel are insignificant and small and unpraiseworthy that God has accomplished in our lives has significance. It has amazing significance. Events that may have happened 20 years ago can have an impact in your life today and in the impact of other people. The very reason that we are all sitting here together at Calvary is because in some point in the past, God has reached into your heart and said, I need you to pay attention to my word. And I'm going to draw you to a people who you can live with and love and serve and give to. And I'm going to tie your hearts and your minds and your lives to these people. And we all came from different paths in different ways at different times But God has said, you are mine. And these small little events are vitally important for the greater good of my work in your life. There is nothing insignificant in your life. There is nothing insignificant in the works that God has accomplished. There is nothing insignificant in your history. And I know you're going to say, but Tim, you don't know my history. I don't. I only know what you've shared with me. But I do know that if your history was filled with rape and murders and adultery and idolatry and greed and envy and jail, I know that that does not disqualify the significance of God working in your life today. In fact, it may make it stronger. It may make you bolder. It may make you more relatable to the people on the outside of the church that don't know anything about Christ you have an opportunity 
to take that which you deem is rotten and insignificant and turn it into praise to God. Also in Romans 8, 28, Paul tells us, we know that all things work together for good of those who love God, those whom he called according to his purpose. All things, Paul says, all things, every event in your life is significant to God in making you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Do we recognize that? Do we notice that? Do we acknowledge that? Or are there parts of our lives that we separate from God and we keep to ourselves? Everything. All the events in our life. And yes, it can be as mundane as driving in your car can have significance to God. And I know for me and you, this is no surprise, I struggle with patience, anger, frustration, when I drive, and God works on me all the time. So driving home from here today is a great, insignificant to the whole of life, but a very significant moment in which I know God is going to address in me. Do I love him more than I love my convenience of getting to where I'm going faster than anybody else? And in the end, I have to say yes. So for me, driving in the car has major spiritual significance to me. Major. All of it God has designed to work together for my good. Now, I don't know where those areas in your life may be. I've driven with some of you, so I know that it's driving as well. But, <laughs> but we all have those parts in our lives where we feel it's insignificant to God's work. And God calls us to recognize it. Not just the major holiday events in our life, but everyday events in our life. He continues in this story, and in verse, chap in verse uh, 36, um, we recognize the Lord in this way. In verse 36, and he, as he rode along, that is from Bethany to Jerusalem, they spread their cloaks on the road. That is, the people who saw Jesus entering in. He, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who has come in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were all going to Jerusalem anyway. The whole of Israel was called one day out of the year to go celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, which for us would have been yesterday. But it's the week-long type of celebration. And they were there celebrating everyone coming into Jerusalem for that major Jewish holiday. And Jesus and his disciples were no different. They were headed there for the holiday to celebrate it and all the events surrounding it, which was a week-long type of celebration. But notice, especially in verse 37, as he was drawing near already down on the way of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So these were the disciples, not just the 12, but everyone who had followed Christ throughout the three years of his ministries in that moment realized as he's riding on a donkey they realize there is significance here. 
Something amazing is going to happen. In their mind, many of them thought that he was going to overthrow the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, and the scribes, and Rome, and set himself up as a king. That wasn't the case, physically. What type of things were they praising Christ for? What type of things, what type of songs were they singing? Because none of these songs had ever been written before. These were all brand new. This was all happening in that moment as they reflected on the last three years that they had seen Christ influence culture and their own lives. What were the things they were singing about? I think they were singing probably about one of his first miracles. They may have praised God for the miracle of turning water into wine. They were praising God for the miracle of feeding thousands of people from a couple loaves of fish and a couple loaves of bread. I imagine they were praying, praising God for all the healings that they had seen, for the resurrection of Lazarus and others walking on the water, telling the wind and the rain and the clouds to stop and nature obey. They sang and praised his work and miracles. I imagine that they were singing about his amazing teaching that confounded the Pharisees and Sadducees and yet brought life to their souls. I bet they were praising God for every step he took, every miracle he performed, every wonder and amazement that they saw from the Mount of Transfiguration to putting the children on his lap saying, for such is the kingdom of God. They were praising him in ways that will take us an eternity to express. But they recognized at that moment, this person in front of them, this person writing in front of them, was praiseworthy. Israel would not have done that unless they knew this person was right. This person was special. I only have one time in my life that I think I recognized and saw someone special. Well, I did recognize them. When I was very young, we went to a parade in Chicago. And in Chicago, um, so there was a parade, and this was before the days of social media, so all we knew was it was a parade. We didn't know who was going to be in the parade. But all of a sudden, as the parade is almost finishing, uh, the, the crowds are cheering and, and super excited. And I thought, oh, maybe it's Santa Claus coming or something. I mean, a little kid, I was thinking Santa Claus. It was during the holidays. It wasn't Santa Claus. It was President Ford. And I remember at that moment having nothing to do with politics as a kid, no sense or idea of how important this was. It's just the, the president. And you could see just the, the crowds around the street just pressing in and not praising and worshiping him, but clapping and being excited and happy at seeing the president come down their street. And I remember to this day, many years later, just that feeling of being overwhelmed in the presence of someone important. Maybe you've experienced that, being in the presence of someone who was really, honestly important. Whether or not you agreed with them or not, if they were an important person. Maybe a boss walking in, maybe the boss's boss, maybe the president of the company walking in, maybe one of your biggest clients walking in, maybe an idol that you've, 
You've dreamed about meeting someone famous. They saw someone famous. Not according to the papers, but according to their own heart. They saw someone vitally important, and they praised him. They worshipped him and recognized him like no one else. But there were people. There were people in that crowd, not Jesus' disciples, but there were people upon seeing this were upset. That's not the way we do it. This is Passover, and as we come into Jerusalem, you need to be quiet and respectful. God is at work here. Be quiet. Don't worship this man. He's just a man. There are people there that are realizing that if this crowd gets out of control, they lose power and influence. And so they responded in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, they get through the crowd and they're talking to Jesus. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, the hidden meaning there is your disciples are in error. Your disciples are wrong. The people who are worshiping you and praising you and recounting all of your great works and wonders, they're wrong. They're wrong for acknowledging you as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. They're wrong for acknowledging you recognizing you they're wrong now why would the pharisees have such a negative response to christ and his disciples at this moment if they didn't realize that their power was slipping away and they were in fear of losing their status as the go-to people in israel for spiritual knowledge with Christ, that's gone. That's wiped off the face of the earth. That is no longer a problem. Because Christ has set himself as the prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who disseminates God's knowledge. Not the Pharisees or Sadducees. And they asked him to rebuke. Jesus' response goes down in history. Literally. Literally. He answers and says, I tell you, all right, what are you going to tell us, Jesus? If they were silent, even the very stones would cry out. Let that sink in for a second. Even if you do not praise God for his many wonders and works in your life, the stones are compelled at the mention of his name to worship. The stones are compelled. I have a new respect for stones and pebbles. In coming here, um, I remember very vaguely, but I remember it more and more. I remember getting car insurance and asking, why is it so much more expensive here than in Ohio? I'm like, really? Why is it? I mean, are there a lot more accidents? Oh, no, 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 no. It's because of all the rocks. I'm like, what do you mean the rocks? Oh, all the rocks. Okay, all the rocks. Do you know how many dings are in my windshield from rocks? <laughs> Three on one car, two on the other. 
I replaced the windshield once. Forget it now. Whatever. They're there. They're going to be there on every road I go on, and it's going to ding again and again and again. And I imagine once the windshield falls out, now it's time to repair it. Once duct tape no longer works, I got to get a new windshield. Why? Because the rocks are so populous. I have no idea where all... Yeah, they come from the mountains. I know where rocks come from, but... The next time, the next time, you look at your windshield, or mine, it's right out here, and you notice a ding in that windshield. Instead of thinking of rocks as a frustrated moment of your life, think of it as... Even that little pebble will praise and worship God if I don't. So in closing, I want to ask one simple question as the band comes up. At the mention of the name of Christ, how will you respond? Will you only respond on days when it's a big day of response? Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, Christmas? Or will your response at his name every single time beat out the stones? And say, I'm going to get my praise and worship in before the rocks do, before the hills do, before the mountains do. I'm going to get there before anyone else praises God for the work in my life. His disciples at that moment, on that road, were focused singularly on worshiping and praising God with all of their might. We can lose our focus. We can be so easily distracted that we forget that at the mention of his name, his people should stand and rejoice and not wait for the rocks. Let's stand and let me close us in prayer. Our gracious Father, we know that at every knee, will bow, that every tongue will confess your greatness and your goodness. We know, Father, that you have called us to more of a life than just celebrating your name a few days a year, but every day you have called upon us to rejoice and worship you and honor your name and recount your great deeds. Help us, Father, to rid our lives of the distractions so that we may recognize you in every event of our life so that at the mention of your name, our hearts would willingly rejoice. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.